0: this episode is sponsored by the professional association of canine trainers affectionately known as pact on sunday the 16th of october pact are hosting the connecting communities conference It's at the University of Winchester, and there is an amazing lineup of speakers. The conference is in-person, so you get to meet real people in the world. It's also accessible. The talks are gonna be short, snappy, and interactive. There'll be lunch and wine, stands to look at, and activities throughout the day. It's gonna be a great day for all dog enthusiasts, and you don't have to be a packed member to come. You can secure your place for just 20 quid. Find out more information on the Facebook page or on the website www.pact-dogs.com Hello and welcome to the award winning Canine Hoopers World podcast. Everyone's invited. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 23 of Canine Hoops World, the podcast. Now, this one's different today. Um, there's an accent change, and also, I'm really excited because we are going to be talking dog a little bit, but we're going to kind of spread the wings of knowledge to the animal kingdom as, as a whole, rather than just being focused on canines today. So I would like to introduce, all the way from New Zealand, Ryan, how are you?
1: Yeah, good, and I'm... Um... I'm digging the pun. I don't know if that was intended. Sp- spreading, <laughs> spreading the wings of knowledge. Considering I've I, I spent just, a lot of time training birds.
0: <laughs> that wasn't intentional, but we'll pretend it was because it sounds really good.
1: <laughs> Cats out of the bag now. How's that for another? Oh, time? Doug,
0: now I'm gonna have to edit this now, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um. Hey, thanks so much for inviting me on your podcast show, and hello to all of your listeners. Oh, well, thank nice you. To- to-
0: Joining us. So for people who don't know you, and actually a lot of the listeners might not know kind of who you are and what you do, because um, a lot of us just deal in the world of dogs, but you've kind of we've crossed paths, well, digitally virtually, um, via the magic of Facebook. Um, and you were actually recommended as a guest. Um, to me, um, very good friend of the podcast, Nick Benjamin was like, I know who you need to get on the pod. So I reached out and you've kindly agreed to come on. So for people that don't know you, who are you and what do you do?
1: Yeah, why on earth should you listen to me? (laughs) You don't have to. You can switch the podcast off right now if you are struggling to understand the strange accent that's coming out of my mouth. But if you are going to stick around, uh, here's a little bit about who I am. Uh, obviously, my name is Ryan Cartledge and, and I'm from New Zealand. We'll start with dog related stuff. Uh, I'm a certified professional dog trainer through the Karen Pryor Academy. Uh, and I've been working internationally as an animal trainer of all species since roughly 2007 here in New Zealand, Australia, the US, and Canada. Uh, I've spent my entire career working in and for zoological organizations, and I now spend my days running my online business, Animal Training Academy, where we connect thousands of animal behavior and training nerds with a large and growing library of online lessons and tutorials delivered by the world's top subject matter experts. But the most important thing about me is that I'm like you, the listener, I love behavior
0: mm-hmm. and
1: I love learning. I am an absolute geek.
0: And also you have a podcast.
1: Yes. And also, so, <laughs> so part, part of Animal Training Academy is a pod, podcast shows. We have multiple mm-hmm. shows. Uh, our show is up to nearly episode 175, I think, and mm-hmm. uh, it's like like wine it's just gotten better of age uh, we've oh, been going 100
0: since... the people that have been here since episode one will agree that it got better as we carried on <laughs> <it.
1: laughs> you saying i was really bad at the start no i'm joking um <laughs> two, 2016 we started uh and yeah it's been an absolute blast uh it's changed my life it's changed my life like there is no doubt that i'm a different person today uh, having done the podcast for six years
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: then I would have been if I hadn't through the connections and conversations that I've had
0: yeah 100% I agree with that and that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have you on because um, I've, I've dipped in and out of um, your podcast for a while and I've been like oh I like this bit and some some of the stuff for me I'm like oh but that's to do with zoo stuff does that kind of relate to what I'm doing working with dogs but actually behavior is behavior regardless of the species and learning theory kind of works pretty much the same across the board we know that positive reinforcement works and obviously training domesticated animals like I mean my my main experience has been um dogs and horses um little bit with cats not mainly training morally coexisting with cats um I don't fully believe you can train cats I'm just I'm not fully convinced by this um and then kind of I actually had a really cool training session with a pig that was awesome and I haven't eaten pig ever since that tra- that session but um for you like what made you kind of get into what what you do why why did you get into the zoological side of things
1: firstly I just want to add (coughs) (laughs) Tilo Tilo stands for the little one she is our Aussie cat Mm -hmm. we've got two cats and Tilo was uh, we we found this cat eight weeks old tiny little thing covered in lice completely Mm. emaciated I would say just just not emaciated like but extremely skinny and, and
2: yeah.
1: fearful and we took her home and we took her to the vet and we, when we went to the vet there was this other cat there so we went home with two cats that day Tilo was also <laughs> around about the same age and found in the wild and she was smaller than era, so we called her the little one. She's I mean, known as. Wait, t-
0: I'm just going to say, I'm stealing that name to put on my future pet <laughs> name list because it's really cool.
1: Tilo, it's like J Lo, but yeah, no, I'm,
0: I'm stealing that. That's stolen.
1: <laughs> t- Tilo and I are currently doing our trick, our novice trick title. Uh, and my last podcast recording was actually with Melissa Millett, uh, who has multiple cats, yeah. and she, she trained uh, the cat that you would see if you watched the movie Pet Cemetery, the, the, the most recent one.
0: And that was a rescue as well, right?
1: Uh, was it a rescue? I, I, believe, I, I...
0: I remember seeing a post of her. So I I stalk her on Facebook all the time. I think the stuff she does and the training stuff she does is epic. Um, maybe it's Agreed. a reflection on my my understanding of training when I had cats that I've never fully trained a cat, but maybe it's a future challenge.
1: <laughs> uh, I... I i am going to remember that you said that and i'll be uh,
0: it does also mean you know, that i'm gonna have to negotiate videos. having a cat again which i oh, can tell you okay. my husband's probably no
1: timeline really
0: agree to so and, and
1: i'll probably listen to your husband as well
0: uh, <laughs> why i don't most of the time
1: <laughs> it's how we uh, ended
0: up with german shepherd i don't
1: listen. I I, I I i sharing my house currently with the two cats wifey Phoebe dog who's a chihuahua, she's smaller than the cats, mm-hmm. and uh a two-year-old toddler. And I'm like, why would anyone add any more beings to their household? <laughs> so I like, could just yeah, And can just I just ask just
0: right? Like, were you were yeah. you at that thought process when it was just the animals, or was it adding a small person that you've gone, wow, okay, why do we
1: uh I think running a company, mm-hmm. Animal Training Academy is, is a full-time job. Yeah. Um so, so that's the other. Person in our household.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I I know that feeling of hope as well. It does end up being a whole other entity that is part of your existence. It does get quite a lot, doesn't it?
1: The two year old definitely added to that for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um,
0: you're because I'm I'm a chihuahua person as well. We have two, um, mm. and I love the tiny dogs. They are they're just fun they're completely underestimated and they're just so cool to train they're just
1: yeah Yeah. well i just trained uh backstall so phoebe jumps on my back nice and and stands there uh we're we're doing a trick title of her as well Uh, and, and so a lot of people were commenting I'm not going to do that with my rich back or I'm not going to do that with my wolfhound. So <laughs> there are there are some benefits to, to well, having a chihuahua. But of them also is you can train when,
0: to... when you teach that behavior, because I'm not going to lie, I did tap out of that with the shepherd because I was like, nope. And also I've got a few friends that have collies that have done exactly that behavior. And just as they're bending up to pick up poo, the dog's gone, oh, you're in that position. And you t- <laughs> I don't need a 30 odd kilo German yeah, shepherd yeah, yeah, yeah. on my back in that moment of the world. <laughs>
1: um gonna put some good proofing generalization behavior into it yeah. oh, sorry some good stimulus control what am I talking about
0: yeah ma- um, make sure that you you do not reinforce this when you're anywhere near a poo bag and you should yeah. be all-
1: <laughs> well well Phoebe I was actually literally on all fours, but I can see times when I'm going to be on the ground playing with my I already thought about this playing with summer mm-hmm. and suddenly <laughs> Phoebe's going to be on my back Um,
0: is when the cats then start going oh that gets reinforcement and joining in with this and then you end up Uh, with and the cats on your back
1: well I shared a photo on Facebook a few weeks ago I just literally sat down to send a text message and suddenly there's a cat sitting on my shoulder Tilo is a unique individual Mm -hmm. our our two cats are so different polar opposites nearly
2: yeah
1: Tilo will just accept attention all day i feel we never actually got we don't have data on that um but but she (laughs) there's no scientific
0: evidence but we're proposing that the theory is she would love us all day
1: she's very very challenging to satiate, and so often things will happen like sit down and send a text and suddenly she's just sitting on your shoulder just chilling (laughs) so yeah it wouldn't surprise me
0: I don't know why but i always feel when a cat is giving you that level of affection like you feel much more kind of like yeah that's cool Then like because dogs like always love you but like when a cat does it you kind of feel a little bit special <laughs>
1: our, our pet sisters i think every single one has not realized the intensity of the tilo. <laughs> i think everyone kind of messages like whoa this cat's intense like because you just she will just be there all the time Love it, absolutely love it. Love her to absolute pieces. Yeah, um, but yes, yeah, and and I, I I guess I should add, our cats are house cats who oh, we've okay. got, uh, and that comes from working in zoos and spending large amounts of time rehabilitating native wildlife that had been attacked by pet cats and feral cats. And so, when we got cats, I said the only way I'm having cats to then girlfriend now wifey Mm -hmm. is if they're house cats i I cannot have on my conscience these animals going out because they are in my personal opinion one of the most effective predators on the planet not not Mm -hmm. domestic cats but the the, the family of cats in general they're just insanely good at what they do
2: yes
1: and our native wildlife in new zealand for example because the cats are a challenge in other countries as well uh, did not evolve with there were two mammals in New Zealand before human before uh, humans got here, okay. and they were bats. And the bats didn't even fly; <laughs> they lived on the ground.
2: What?
1: Because because there were no predators, so there was okay. no need there was no need to use flight to evade. Well, there, there were predators. That's a lie. But there were the mammalian predators like cats. Okay. Um, and so it was. And so a lot of our birds became flightless.
0: Yeah. Well, the, the uh, kind of national bird is known for walking around looking cute, right?
1: Yeah, kiwis, for example, is a well-known one.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and so our native wildlife isn't evolved to deal with. And and we're seeing the results of introduced mammals in this country. And it's decimating, decimating our wildlife. Uh, and so I couldn't have that on my conscience. So, no, and I,
0: and I think that is a really important point to raise because kind of in the uk um it's normal that cats are just out and about and they just do the thing and obviously you know we do have more predators you know we have foxes and stuff that kind of still hang out and are around regularly i mean we see there's definitely four just where i am and i'm in like a really built up kind of area but there's four foxes that i know by sight which one's which um the cat we had before, um, also bigger than the Chihuahua, um, his nickname was actually Cat Dog because of how big he was, but he was a house cat. Mainly because of where we live, we were very close to like a lot of traffic and stuff, but it was also that reason of, I had birds growing up, you know, we had aviaries in the garden. Um, we had, um, personally I had my, rosellas, my brothers had lovebirds, we had cockatiels, canaries, budgies, you know, the general kind of sort of more domesticated parakeets. And I didn't want my cat to kind of be responsible for like getting a robin or I am I love our garden. Our garden is literally full of robins and sparrows and like all these other cute little birds. And the dogs are hilarious because the only birds they bother with are the pigeons. Like any other bird can come in the garden except the pigeons, they are not allowed. (laughs) Which I feel a bit mean for the pigeons, but you know, it saves the bird food for the little ones. But I do think that people really don't understand what an impact domestic cats have on the surrounding area you know from being on the farm we have farm cats all the time and they are there to keep down the rats and stuff but the farm cat would regularly bring me full-size adult male rabbits and leave parts of them outside my stable which was a lovely present but you think if a cat can take down a rabbit that is nearly as big as it, then what chance do these little frogs and birds and other things stand, really?
1: Yeah, and and the, our country is, with regards to European settlement, there were people in New Zealand, uh, indigenous people before Europeans got here. But mm. I, I say to my wife, who's from Bristol, I oh, look at that building, it's so old. Unless that's a hundred years old, because our that's European old. history is a hundred exactly. And so, and so our our natural history, our flora and fauna, uh, has really only had, in terms of if we were to compare ourselves to your country, mm-hmm. um, a relatively short period. Um, but that's not to say that the exponential decline of native species in that period uh, reflects how short that these species have been here. Yeah. Um, i don't know i don't know about the uk i know know one state in australia they've just passed a law to make it that every single new cat that is acquired has to be an indoor cat Mm -hmm. Uh, and and australia is uh, under the same pressures as new zealand anyway you asked me why we did a zoo
0: (laughs) yeah but hey dude like honestly we go off on branches all the time and it's cool the listeners are used to my tangents it's fine um Right. So, yeah, why, why did you want to work at a zoo? Now we've discussed cats and like why people shouldn't let their cats go and like kill the baby sparrows. <laughs> why? Because I easy? wanted
1: to rehabilitate injured birds killed by. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I decided uh, to work in the zoo industry when I was about 15. And I remember super clearly making a decision. I remember this quite well. Uh, we were sitting in high school doing quizzes, and these quizzes were meant to uh, identify what industry we might end up in. I got builder which is accurate I I love building things and I've considered this industry job many times Mm -hmm. uh, although I've never gone down that road (laughs) and although I got builder I remember my mate uh, sitting next to me got zookeeper and and he's now a chef but I was thinking (laughs) I mean to be fair when
0: I did that I think it said like I was, I wanted to do something to do with fashion or makeup and like, I couldn't be any further for away from that now. So yeah.
1: Well, yeah. So I was, well, mine was quite accurate, but, but I just saw Zuki and I went, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> that That is, that is what I wanted to do. Uh, I, I was, when I was young, never allowed a dog.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I was allowed goldfish
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I had some mice, but,
0: yep. uh,
1: no cats or dogs or anything like that. But I loved watching wildlife documentaries. I was fascinated by the natural world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in high school, I was top of my class for biology. Uh, And and that's interesting because I struggled to find myself motivated to be interested in anything else. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I loved biology. Uh, I knew nothing about the zoo industry other than I wanted to work in it. I remember Googling the best zoo in the world. Uh, Google told me that it was San Diego Zoo. Mm
2: -hmm. So
1: I set my sights on working at San Diego Zoo. Uh, I never got to work there. uh, I failed at ever securing a green card to work in the US. Um, I did visit though and spent a couple of days there being shown around by uh, the team. Mm -hmm. But after school, uh, I went to university. I earned a bachelor's degree majoring in biology And on a huge tangent, I went and lived in South Korea for a year, teaching English. Uh, Straight after that, I started volunteering in zoos uh, and within 12 months was working in the industry. Uh, So that was was circa 2007. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't looked back. I no longer work as an employee in zoos, uh, but rather as a consultant and with individuals via the Animal Training Academy.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: So I think my motivation... When I was 15, it's potentially significantly different from others. Uh, Also, maybe the difference in time between then and now means new incentives for new and upcoming keepers. Uh, Zoos contribute such a huge amount to conservation, both Mm -hmm. via the work they do on site, within the actual zoos themselves, and by dedicating resources to conservation initiatives both on the zoo grounds and in the wild, around the world. Uh, And so these are, I think, significant draw cards in 2022 uh, to get involved in working for a zoo. My motivation was a little bit simpler, though. I just thought it would be cool.
0: Yeah, no, but, and let's face it, like, being a zookeeper is kind of on, like, those lists of jobs that kids want to do. Like, zookeepers got to be on there along with, like, pirate and, I don't know, maybe... Hmm, what else would be a cool thing to do when you're a kid like be a fireman or something you know there's kind of a list of jobs that you're like actually zookeeper keep would be cool because you get to work with the elephants and the giraffes and you instantly think of all the bigger animals but actually when you go to the zoo like there's just so so many different species that you could be working with I'm I mean I'm assuming that do you have to specialize, or do people tend to specialize in an area of say like the big cats or kind of reptiles, or do people kind of flip between the sections?
1: um yeah, and I think just just on your first point i in in western culture mm-hmm. uh, places like the u k and New Zealand, I think that the position of zookeeper. Um, has that element of uniqueness and yeah. wow about it uh, and that's not the case in all places around the world and uh, in, in the, some developing countries uh, zookeepers look down on like basically they're they are i don't know if i can swear on your podcast so i won't you, you can swear as
0: much as you want i do it all the fucking time <laughs> they're,
1: they're, they're they're shit scrapers
0: yeah, well that, I, I was gonna say you know from working at stables like you're basically you are a glorified shit shoveler
1: yeah a, a lot of a lot of the time is spent um, ensuring that the animals habitats are uh, clean <laughs> <Poop three>. and, <laughs> and and poop free and and safe and mm-hmm. containment is secure uh, and so that is a lot of your effort uh, yeah you're doing that whilst you're simultaneously spending time with really cool animals. Uh, and and I, I personally enjoyed uh, just being so physical and being out and about and um, caring for and, and getting to know all of these awesome animals. Um, but I think the answer to your question depends on the individual, what they what they want. Some people just want to work with certain species, so they're more likely going to, Uh, seek out opportunities where that would be the focus. Uh, But additionally, it depends on the organization you're working for, Uh, larger zoos that are uh, Mm -hmm. well-resourced, take COVID away because COVID messed with everyone's resources, Mm -hmm. but generally speaking, well-resourced. I think there's more opportunity to do that, to specialize. Yeah, Uh, Smaller zoos, family-run parks, the resources are significantly less and you are more of a jack of all trades in my experience.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um so you might be pulled across different areas, but there there is no rules. I've worked in well resourced larger zoos where people are shifted around Uh, Mm -hmm. whether they like it or not sometimes
0: oh okay so you can be like but I don't want to work with the snakes yeah
1: and I've been in um some uncomfortable situations where people were really upset uh, by decisions made by managers to to move them around Mm -hmm. uh, based on the needs of the organization as opposed to the individual's desires but Um, I guess
0: as I mean is the correct term keeper uh, if you're working with like a certain well, animal are you the zoo key? like I want to use the correct term I don't want to like piss people off
1: <laughs> uh I, I would I, I like the term learning partner but that refers more to training
0: mm-hmm.
1: um zoo carer.
0: okay so say like you know you've you've worked with I'm gonna pick alpacas it was the first thing that came into my brain mm-hmm. and you've been working with the alpacas for a year. You know them all by name. They come over when you call them. You've got a really cool relationship. And then all of a sudden it's oh no, actually you've now got to go and work with the armadillos. You'd be like, but I like the alpacas.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and, and that's definitely not the norm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I but I have been in those situations, and then I've been on the teams with the people who had to shift and. They, they weren't happy but th- that's not the norm that's not the okay. norm I'm just adding that into uh, my answer to your question that it really depends there isn't yeah, there isn't no. a black and white
0: yeah of course there's no there's never going to be a it's this box and this box and this box because there are so many variants aren't there of as you say resources and how many species they have at the zoo you know there's like little parks over here that mainly have like basically just small animals and there might be like a little lemur enclosure. there tends to be meerkats like there seems to be this thing where everyone just needs a meerkat enclosure with with a bubble that the little kids can look up in like Mm -hmm. that seems to be like standard in most places I've been to but I mean I obviously when when I think zoos I think of like the bigger places where you have the not being horrible to like the smaller species but you have the big sexy animals that kind of do the cool stuff
1: yeah and and the big sexy animals for example I'm going to choose a Sumatran tiger they're really threatened in in their wild habitats and so Mm -hmm. if you see a Sumatran tiger in a collection it's apart from a very small number of parks we've all seen Zoe joe exotic and whatever that program was called tiger king
0: we won't talk um, about that whole thing that that whole yeah well, crazy american uh, people yep
1: but generally speaking when you see a Sumatran tiger uh, something that a lot of people potentially don't realize is that that Sumatran tiger is in a popular even though it might be living uh if it's not paired up with a mate and by itself for a period of time,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: then its genetics are too important for it not to be considered at the very least in all efforts put into trying to spread those genetics to the next generation. But if it is living by itself, it is living in a population. It's living in a global population of Sumatran tigers managed by a stud bookkeeper that is strategically pairing up individual animals to ensure the survival of the species. Mm-hmm. And so those, those big, sexy animals um, are, part of collections and meerkats help bring people into the zoo so they can see the big sexy animals so that we can inspire people and when they're inspired and they're open to listening we can share about conservation and we can share about things they do so everything everything's linked and the meerkats definitely have an important role and there's a good reason I think whilst you see them why you see them in so many collections they they are a crowd favorite for sure in my experience
0: yeah, yeah so I mean, out of all the animal, I mean, obviously, I'm assuming that you've worked with several kind of different animals and stuff. What What's the kind of species that you've gravitate for? I feel like kind of birds are maybe in there because you sort of mentioned that. But kind of if we could go, right, right, this is what you're going to train. What would you pick? What would be your like your favorite?
1: Well, I don't have one. Uh, I, I love working with all animals. As
0: many as you need to. <laughs> you can give uh, me like a top 50, it's
1: fine. Well, I think more importantly, I, lo- I love working with individuals. The the individual animal, no matter what the species, species mm-hmm. is, is, is what's really appealing to me. Uh, in saying that though, there are so many species and each one is unique. Uh, I love eagles, their grace, their power, their, yep. their general awesomeness. Uh, Koalas and wombats have a special place in my heart as well. They are totally cool, uh, especially wombats. I've actually had the pleasure of living with a wombat, like literally in a house with us. That's (laughs) very cool. This was a young, mm, debatable. Okay, debatable. (laughs) Uh, This was a young wombat, and once it got older and larger this became inappropriate, but the young young wombat was was a highlight for me and, and the specific individual was called Wiggles. And funnily enough, we have a giant stuffed wombat in our house at the moment that belongs to my two-year-old daughter and its name is Wiggles.
2: Obviously. Uh,
1: <laughs> and I appreciate that there are likely people listening to this who have no idea what a wombat is. So let me explain the species as best I can. Uh, There are three species, actually. The one I worked with and the species Wiggles was is a southern hairy-nosed wombat, geographically separated from the northern hairy-nosed wombat, uh, and both distinctively different from the common or bear nosed wombat. Uh, The southern adults can get up to 40 kilograms in size and run at about 40 kilometers an hour, which I think is about 24 miles an hour and about 90 pounds. Uh, They kind of resemble a giant hamster. Uh, And and they're about the size of a medium-sized suitcase. Um, They are related to koalas. And like koalas, they have a huge, flat, hard bone on their backside. Koalas use this to to gain purchase in trees, to sit on or in a tree. Uh, Wombats use it to do things like crush skulls. Uh, I understand that they have found crushed predator skulls, dingoes, at the entrance to burrows. uh, And... So wombats live in these substantial burrow systems. They're they're nocturnal animals that live in these substantial burrow systems. My understanding is it's believed they block the entrance to the burrow with their bums and this huge bone. And then they let the dingo head in over their backside, followed by slamming it upwards. Wow. (laughs) So they've they've found crushed skulls at the entrance. I don't know if anyone's ever observed this. Oh my God,
0: every day's a school day. And even if that's not a thing, it's a thing now because it sounds super fun.
1: (laughs) And these wombats live in southern parts of Australia. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they get hit by cars,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, although they're such solid animals. uh, It's my Mm -hmm. understanding. Sometimes cars can fare off a little bit worse than the wombats. I mean,
0: I know, obviously, from people that have hit. um, So over here, it would be probably the nearest equivalent I can think of would be like a badger, which... Mm is nowhere near as heavy and that like you can flip a car hitting a bad yeah, so I'm yeah. assuming that a wombat is gonna turn yeah. you over like wow yeah, you don't
1: miss you don't mess with wombats <laughs> they, they they've got mighty jaws massive incisors used for chewing grass and and they will mess you up <laughs> but I,
0: I feel like you've just told me that like Okay, I'm going to geek out and have a Pokemon moment here, but I feel like the hamster's like the little baby Pokemon, and then the final evolution is the one.
1: <laughs> I think, yeah, the final evolution of species on planet Earth will be the wombat. That, uh, <laughs> That's that, it. That, <laughs> that, they're, they're great learners, though, uh, and you can build beautiful relationships with them. I, I definitely have with multiple Wombats. Um, when Wiggles are small grass, a lot of grass, okay. plant, plant material, but Wiggles love sweet potato and wee- Weedabix. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Breakfast of champions.
1: <laughs> when, when she was small, we used to wake her up, chuck her in the back of the car. She would lie on her back and sleep, would drive for hours to some locations, do education with her at a school fair or something. And once there, she would get up, she would wander around, she would sniff everyone, and she would inspire people. People loved wiggles. Uh, and she is still doing well. And I understand contributing to the next generation of wombats as part Aww. of this. Thing captive breeding program
0: but i guess so like when when they're like little and cute they're little and cute and then all of a sudden if like so to put this kind of into perspective so my german shepherd who is not small by any means is 33 kilos
1: yeah so heavier large females uh will get heavier then
0: that that's ridiculous like yeah and i mean so i remember many moons ago like people were like getting these micro pigs that Guess what? They weren't small once they grew. Yeah. Um, and it kind of sounds like the same thing. Like you got this little cute thing and then all of a sudden it just kept freaking growing. And then it was a hefty thing with a really hard butt. And I can see yeah. why that would be problematic in a house.
1: And we, we always knew that it was going to end up, Wiggles was going to end up contributing to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we, we embraced the opportunity to uh, use her for an educational animal uh, up until a certain age. But apart from wombats, I love insects. I love reptiles. I love birds. I love mammals, amphibians. I love plants. I love dogs. I love cats. I love cows, horses, sheep, pigs. I love possums, ferrets, weasels, lions, and tigers and bears.
0: Oh my! Oh, I have
1: to do it. I love them all, and and building knowledge and applying the tools that the science of learning and behaviour change offers us nowadays makes me super excited to work with the homo sapien species of mm-hmm. course we are all earthlings too and human learners are some of if not my favorite to work with so yeah that's my favorite species at the moment
0: yeah no, I, and that that is a very very good answer um going back to kind of with my experience of like horses and dogs I remember kind of being like actually I I kind of felt a bit more as much as I loved working with the horses and I miss it very much, I've kind of find working with dogs has just kind of clicked with me better. Like it's just also, I'm not going to like, I got fed up of being trampled by rude horses because it's a young person's game. And there's only so many times you get kicked and stuff in a field and you're like, do you know what? I don't want to do this anymore because it's starting to really hurt now. Um, But I remember like my boss at the time was like, I think you're better with predators than you are prey and I mean when you kind of if you simplify it to that kind of point is there in your experience a really big difference from training more prey based animals or more predatory based animals or is it kind of you just work with the individual as an individual that's a really open question I'm sorry
1: (laughs) well it's such a great question I think a number of things to take into consideration there. Firstly, I heard Dr. Susan Freeman talk about this recently. It might have been mm. on an ATA podcast show. I can't remember now. I think it was on Joan Or's tag teaching webinar. She, she, she was talking about the story of Noah's Ark and how they got all of these species on this boat because they were all different.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But at the same time, they were all the same. Uh, because they all they all learned the same. They all read signals in their environment which helps them understand that geeky BC contingencies were available. If, if then relationships, if I do then, then this happens based on what happened last time I was in that context. Mm-hmm. So whether you're a snake or a horse or a dog or a lion or a meerkat or a wombat, mm-hmm they are the laws of behavior that work on planet earth. planet earth my job is to come in with the science of learning and behavior and mm-hmm. the tools that it provides us and based on what i've just shared they are universal
2: yeah. i am
1: by, by i'm firstly by no means a horse expert natural history subject matter expert or on many of the species i work with um, but i work in a team Mm -hmm. And I bring that level of analysis to the team. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: So I I acknowledge and am excited by the challenges that different species provides, but it's the same tools, just applied in different ways. Uh, So so there's that. If I can, when I'm working with a new species, I will learn as much as I can about their natural history. Mm -hmm. It's It's really important to do that. Often I have people and I like to surround myself with people who are smarter than me and have that knowledge so I can lean on them as they would lean on me for the behavioral science aspect. Um, And and then the other thing is if we look at a species, whatever species it is, let's use horses Mm -hmm. and let's look at the likelihood of a horse to kick. Mm -hmm. There's a bell curve of individuals and in the middle is the average likelihood of a horse to kick and then down one end of the bell curve is the horse that never kicks
0: mm-hmm.
1: And down the other end is a horse that spends his whole life kicking <laughs> <It's near laughs> that's now. literally
0: just wants you to die and has had enough of you like
1: yeah. right and so and so if you take the genetics of the the species mm-hmm. but, and if you take the learning history of the species so you don't know where on that bell curve this animal is going to be
2: mm-hmm. you don't
1: know the learning history of this individual animal. Mm -hmm. then my strategy is to learn as much as I can but when I step in front of that individual animal I leave that baggage at the door and I (laughs) let the animal's behavior in front of me now guide my decisions
0: that's and do you know that's just resonated with me so much um are you familiar with the stuff that um, Kim Brophy does, um, the legs kind of stuff? Like, as you were saying that, I was like, hang on, this means that legs applies to horses and to wombats and to lions. And, oh, my God, I've just had, like, this little light bulb moment that it's not just dogs. And I think as, as a dog trainer, because that is that is my learning and my environment is being around dogs and my genetics is I grew up around dogs and my dad had dogs and There were family dogs for many generations. And then as myself, I love dogs. So I'm applying that legs to me. It makes sense that dogs are my focus. But when I can then go, well, hang on, that applies to me. You can literally apply this to all the other species, the snakes, the scorpions, whatever it is. You can spread that around. And this is the thing that I find that the more I know, the less I know. And the more excited I
1: am. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. I think <laughs> being a, a lifetime learner mm-hmm. is an important skill of a good trainer.
0: Yep.
1: You Never stop learning.
0: And Ever. even like with you specializing in what you do now with with the academy, you know, and with me doing hoop as well, as much as I have my little niche of what I do, it's also, I still like learning about this new stuff. It's why I love having these conversations on my podcast because every episode I'm, I'm learning new stuff every day and there's a new story and it's cool.
1: And, and also every individual animal you work with, I, I mentioned before that they are my learning partners. So yeah. I'm stepping into a learning relationship. I, I, I see them as teaching me and I'm learning and they're learning. I don't don't particularly resonate with the word teacher. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I just see each situation as a learning opportunity. And I just learn so much every time uh, I step in front of the animal. Uh, Phoebe teaches me so much every day. For example, we are teaching assisted upright walking. It's a trick
2: for Mm -hmm.
1: a trick title. And that means that her paws are on your arm Mm -hmm. and you've got to walk backwards and she's got to walk with you. So I did my first session and it went great and we got her doing a couple of steps a little bit hesitantly um, but we clicked early on and, and it was great and then I went about my day and I went back later that afternoon and I tried again and she was just jumping on the end of my arm and she wouldn't go to the center and nothing was working I was like what did I do differently what I did you I think? Fa- <laughs> <laughs> well it wasn't it wasn't the clicking it was I, I film all my training so I Immediately watched it and I went, What? I can't okay. I watched it, I couldn't see anything. I watched the other video back.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was like, oh, I used a different arm last time. And so this, this is my that was my feeding arm that I feed with most of the time. And cause my hand was in a clenched fist in front of her, she's just like gravitating towards the fist. She's because like, Oh, you're feeding Generally,
0: her. there's food in there.
1: Exactly. And I, I just I could not see that in front of me when I was there with her I had to watch the video to click on that
0: and oh I'm so glad you just said this because one of the really early episodes was why videoing your training is so important and people get so self-conscious about videoing their own stuff but I'm like you're not doing it as a Facebook live like the whole world can't see it's just a video for you to look back on and you know, I try when I can to get our competition runs filmed if possible, because, you know, if it's a clear round, amazing, brilliant. But if we don't get a clear I'm like, why? Was it me? Was it the ground? Did something happen? Did I, Generally, it's me, because obviously, generally, it is us peoples that mess up the whole training situation. But I think that videoing your training stuff, especially when you're working towards trick titles and stuff, because you know you've got to video it anyway. It's really good to kind of get in the habit and feel confident just having your phone there. I mean, you have your phone with you all the time anyway. So having it across the room pointed at you suddenly feels really different, doesn't it? It's not the same as it being in your hand with your face Googling something or whatever.
1: Yeah. And I think that builds on a couple of things we've already talked about. Firstly, it was so clear in my brain just then i do
0: this all the time talking about the
1: phones i'm turning my phone upside down it's facing forward up on my desk and it distracted me and that's That's why i lost honestly this is my
0: world welcome to
1: it i've been doing podcasts for 60s i'm not fluent i've got to i've got to proof my behaviors because i'm easily distracted obviously (laughs) um oh so i'll jump jump to the second thing the second thing being that the laws of behavior work the same for all earthlings and I think a challenging earthling to apply the laws to, and now the second thing has come back to me, is ourselves. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, if people don't want to film, and I, I agree that many people don't, is because filming is a space of vulnerability. And even even if you're not showing it to someone else, you've still got a critic and Mm -hmm. that critic is you. So if you film yourself and watch yourself back, you're making yourself vulnerable to yourself. If the dialogue is of a self-critical nature Mm -hmm. and that's one reason I love working with humans is applying this stuff and helping others see how to apply it to themselves with our dogs we have a clicker in our hand and we're waiting for desirable behavior to click. And that's where our focus is.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and if we were to agree that the laws of behavior work the same for all earthlings and the tools that the laws or the laws of learning, I should say, and the tools that the laws in the science of learning teaches us and offers us like positive reinforcement and clicker training, then i love exploring how we could use that for ourselves as well
2: mm-hmm. and
1: if we're filming and we're watching it back imagine if it was a dog and we had a clicker in our hand we're wa- we're waiting for those clickable moments
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and learning to focus have the same focus on ourselves yeah what what is it that we did that we liked what is the reinforceable behavior in this session that we want to see maintained or increased? Mm-hmm. That, that is a very challenging, and I'm not saying it's easy to do. No, it's, it's, me...
0: it's not. And I think as, as people, we've kind of been conditioned to focus on the negative stuff because as society, we get punished when we make bad choices and stuff. We don't always get reinforced for making good choices. So I think especially when we're self-critiquing, rather than going oh what did I do good you're straight away going what did I do wrong whereas when you're training the learner in front of you whether it's another human or a dog or a cat or whatever you're going oh let's get ready to click them for getting it right but when we're looking at ourselves I think quite often straight away our brain goes oh what did we do wrong which is a total shift from what we should be focusing on
1: well there's a lot in there there's what What did I do right as well, and the mindset to know that you can improve,
2: mm-hmm. and that
1: even and and to celebrate learning opportunities.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: For me, often, the bits I like most about my training session is when Phoebe does something other than what I want, because she's communicating to me where our teaching needs to head for her as an individual in whatever behavior we're working on myself as well oh maybe I should put the food in this position or maybe I should feed with that hand or maybe I should do assisted upright walking with my other hand <laughs> uh, or spend longer and uh, teach that when we do it this specific way
0: mm-hmm. the
1: clenched fist doesn't mean food
0: yeah
1: that's where all the opportunities are so for me those things that others might label as failures or mistakes I see as learning opportunities and I know that's so cliche and I feel like a twat saying it but
0: but it's not though because I think it's really easy for us to kind of overlook that side of it when we're talking about ourselves as as the learner or as part of the learning team because especially as trainers because we are the professionals we kind of put pressure on ourselves that we should always be getting it right and we should always know the answers but actually I I did a post the other day you know about people rushing their training and not spending enough time on the foundations and the the sexy stuff is just the foundations done really really well and unless you've kind of got those foundations right you you can't do the cool stuff because you need the foundations there and I think as trainers we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be getting those right because we should know the foundations because we've done the foundations and we understand them but everything else comes into it how much sleep you've had what you've had to eat whether you know you've worked with this learner before or if it's a totally new learner to you there's so many other factors but still the pressure remains the same
1: yeah, no, and just in terms sleep and eating routines, and the the cleanliness for me, the cleanliness of my environment. I'm so glad you can't see the rest of my office. <laughs> That's the that, reason that... the camera's facing <laughs> this way. Oh, your house looks so clean. um And the other thing is, well, there's a, there's a couple of things that came to mind as you were saying that. Firstly, let's think about that comparison between what we do with our dogs and what we do with ourselves Mm -hmm. with ourselves we see people on social media doing all of this training and we think well that doesn't look like what i do at my house Uh, and if we're to think about dogs we might see a, a dog walking loosely on a lead and we've got this reactive aggressive whatever label we're placing on it dog in front of us with our client So you've met my German shepherd, Cole. I was talking about no, And we as as professionals come in and we start with that individual is. We're not going to start to click for Mm -hmm. that loose leash walking then. Mm
2: -hmm. We're going
1: to figure out proximity. We're going to figure out triggers Mm -hmm. or cues, whatever word you use. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: and we're going to start with this individual and we're going to go at their pace. what does that look like if we were to place that mirror on ourselves, and also to to take that cliched saying, "Go at the individual's pace." We are all learners, and we are all we don't all have the knowledge and the, the practical experience to do what everyone else is doing. So we have to figure out where we are as a learner, and we have to take the next approximation for us. Yeah, and. There's a huge difference for me. I can only speak about how life works for Ryan Mm College, but there is a huge difference between textbook learning and contingency-based learning, going out and actually living the if-then relationships of a training session. They're just two completely different things. We can learn as much as we want, but we need to feel that out and we need to go at our pace as well.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And And the final thing, to build on that idea of what is the next successive approximation for us? If we have that reactive dog, that aggressive dog, we are taking it very slowly. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: We're changing one small thing at a time. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I think there is, it's not easy to do all of these things we're talking about because you have to learn to do that with yourselves. And sometimes taking small approximations seems so counterintuitive because we're smart homo sapien learners. We can do it more. I disagree with that i think we are learners yeah and i think we learn the same way Mm
2: -hmm. as our
1: dogs do and small tiny approximations is the Mm -hmm. fastest way to get results for us as well that that's been my experience
0: yeah
1: uh, and i think relates to filming yeah because you see all of these things you want to change and you try to change them all we would call that lumping yeah I would, I would call that lumping
2: yeah yeah yeah
1: um, so back to working with different species, this is where I come in mm-hmm. and I teach oftentimes I teach human learners how to learn
0: yeah
1: and and the processes of behave, the processes of learning, what the science of learning teaches us and the tools and how to apply them to to yourselves mm-hmm um that that's that's my role and that's why i enjoy working with so many species but it's the behavior change comes from the human yeah i have to change the human's behavior
0: yep spoken like a true dog trainer there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah i don't know where that leaves us with regards to where our conversation
0: no, that's is. cool although that's just kind of put another little branch in my brain of Because obviously with you kind of having that zoo background and working in the kind of zoological field, what made you do the dog training? Like why? (laughs) It's almost like, but dude, you can train all these cool animals. Why dogs?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, So I was working in Queenstown, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And on social media, I noticed an old high school friend had, had moved to the area. I was actually paragliding at the time, flying with a big inflatable wing. Yep,
0: that's just and silly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's
0: just well, silly. A, I'm just putting bird,
1: out that. As a bird trainer, it's the ultimate, right? Now I'm flying. And I, and I went to Nepal and I met Scott Mason and then we flew with his Egyptian vultures. So we were hundreds of meters up in the air flying with these Egyptian vultures. And I was like, I want to do that. So I moved to Queenstown because Queenstown's where all the paragliding is in New Zealand. You need really ideal environments and in, in wind conditions and heights
0: what so you no. can actually stay up when you don't have wings yeah no that sounds sensible yeah you need <laughs>
1: to use the thermals the, the the hot air rising off the earth ground you need to learn where they how they form where they form how to ride them. i mean it was a lot of fun uh and so i met my i met my friend down there who had moved down there and he was making these online courses about high performance cars
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and uh, doing financially very well for himself and he said to me dude anyone can make a course about something and stick it online and this was 2014 so online mm-hmm. courses were like
0: yeah no no, no they weren't really a thing then
1: no and so he's like so I'm like well I've already got content because I've been playing around and putting presentations together for a while now so he's like cool man hop over let's film something so I did, we did, mm-hmm. and I stuck it online and people brought it and I was like, wow, I just made X amount of money doing something I love for myself. a not,
0: really cool feeling, is it? Especially when you wake up and you're like, oh my God, someone in a random country has just bought my course. Like, yay, yeah, it's yeah. Cool
1: was, and also that I'd spent my entire life as an employee. So here I was suddenly on my own back generating mm-hmm. income mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
1: anyway cut a long story short wifey wanted to move cities so she could study then girlfriend now wifey and so we decided to pack up and, and move to wellington
2: which mm-hmm. is terrible
1: for paragliding it's like the windiest place in the country so i had to my paraglider still in the garage god poor thing hadn't come out for years and I didn't know what to do. I'd worked at Wellington Zoo before. They didn't have a training position. Mm
2: -hmm. I
1: I really didn't want to go backwards in my career. And in terms of the direction I wanted to go, Wellington Zoo is a great place to work for. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go all in on this training thing. I got some zoo jobs as a consultant around New Zealand, earned a bit of income uh, and started failing forward, learning how to, make online courses and market them mm-hmm. randomly. And then at, at that time we were going, well, do we want a child in the future? And so I knew that I wanted to build something there where I could be home. I mean, I can literally go upstairs now and have breakfast with my daughter. Mm-hmm. And there's not, you know, my office is a 30 second walk from my front door. Uh, there's not many people who can say that. Uh, so I have a really... And I finished work, and then sixty seconds later, me and my daughter are playing outside.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yesterday, we went to the hardware store together and brought window security.
0: See, you were doing that building thing. Good job.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so that that's how it came about. I never envisioned it. I never planned it. But I'm obviously repeating reinforced behaviors, and here I am. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um. So kind of going back to the zoo stuff how do you think kind of the zoo I mean I know just from my lifetime you know being a little kid and I'm I'm going to use London Zoo as kind of my my kind of focal point because that was the zoo I remember going to as a kid and I remember the enclosures were quite stark you know they were concrete it was the 80s um i've just told everyone my age now which is horrendous um but i can remember zoos like they were kind of there for people to see the animals rather than animals to be thriving in a captive environment would that be kind of fair to say
1: uh yeah, you know, I was I was born in 1983. There you go. I'll join you in sharing my age.
0: <laughs> You're still um, younger.
1: <laughs> I, I remember going to, oh, maybe it was San Diego Zoo when I was a kid. Uh-huh. And and zoos have this term, it's, uh, and I'm going to butcher it. It's called something like poignant moments. Like we want to create these moments for people that they'll remember for the rest of their lives when they come uh-huh. in. Uh, and, I, and I have one of those moments being like five years old and San Diego Zoo I was standing in front of the I think it was a I can't remember if it was a rhino or a hippo who does this one of those species wags their tail when they urinate
0: I want to say hippos
1: I think it's hippos yeah so
0: I, I'm just like coming at this from someone that their knowledge of hippos is like watching Attenborough stuff so I'm
1: embarrassed I, I don't know that yeah um, <laughs>
0: Dude, you're forgiven. You can't know everything about every species, okay? Forgive yourself. <laughs>
1: and and so you can imagine, if you're standing quite close to the backside of one of these species, and it urinates, what happens? But I just remember <laughs> being see. coated in urine.
2: <laughs> really? uh,
1: and, and so my 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 rest of my memory from that time period is, is pretty limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the the change in in the industry is phenomenal, though. If you were to take a screenshot now uh, and compare it to when I started in 2007, Mm -hmm. uh, zoos continually develop, contribute, and as mentioned, are genuinely a champion for conservation. This has come so far in in my 15 years since 2007, Mm -hmm. uh, and and developments just keep getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. talking. Talking about London Zoo as well, big shout out to uh, Jim Mackey, who runs the behaviour programs there. They're at the head of the behaviour management, enrichment, uh, voluntary care
2: mm-hmm.
1: projects, information spreading uh, at that zoo, they have a world class individual. Uh, with who has that growth mindset and is a, a lifetime learner uh heading, heading that department and and not just London Zoo across the, all of Zoo's London sites
0: mm-hmm. um, yeah because um Whip would be the one that I used to go to more as a kid because it was actually close to where I live so for me I've always I think I've gravitated more to like the safari parks. I just liked the fact the animals have more space whereas zoos I think still have a little bit of a negative connotation for some people that they're Mm, like you know then they're not good and I don't think people understand that the the good stuff and the conservation stuff that zoos are doing and I know there are some people in the animal industry that have very strong opinions on zoos but I think we need to look at it from the point of view of the bigger picture of that conservation. You know, there are species that unfortunately, because of peoples, have wrecked their environments and they are now so close to extinction in the world that without zoos, they they're just gonna be gone, aren't they?
1: Yeah, and, and zoos are one of the biggest contributors to conservation worldwide. Um, I, th- I think for the rest of this answer, though, I'll stick to the behavior side of things. Yeah, no, that's cool. uh, and, and as the work of, of people like Jim Mackey uh, and Susan Friedman mm-hmm. starts to filter into more and more areas where animals are cared for, yeah. our ability to provide high levels of welfare for them is just amazing. It, it blows my mind. And as trainers and behavior subject matter experts, uh, we enter this picture to help provide that essential jigsaw puzzle piece the science of learning. And and I'm seeing more and more zoos have specialized behavior members on their team now, like Jim Mackey, which is fantastic. Uh, So 10 years ago, I don't think for a lot of zoos, especially in Australasia, I know the first behavior management positions were formed in the last five years or so. Wow. Um, Then these teams in these zoos are upskilled in how behavior works. I know uh, zoos in our region, their entire teams now have gone through Susan Friedman's LLA course. Uh, and and the and therefore the practical application of their knowledge is applied to improve the lives of the animals they house. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is happening in large zoos with those considerable budgets yeah. but I also know it's happening in smaller private collections. Uh-huh. Uh, for example, one I can speak super highly of is, is Moonlit Sanctuary in Melbourne, Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I work closely with this team. I'm heading there at the end of this month um, and we've injected so much knowledge into the humans and, and they've I've been working there for, I think, four years now. And Mm -hmm. the practical application they are demonstrating is so excellent from training their carpet pythons, monitor lizards, koalas, dingoes, Tasmanian devils, crocodiles, eagles. Uh, Brody Zealand just posted in our Facebook community, uh, Mary the wombat, which our community was loving on. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm also on an animal training and behavior subcommittee. The I love that your
0: chihuahua is getting involved right now. This is hilarious. <laughs> like, because the listeners, obviously, they can't see what I can see. But I every now and again, this little chihuahua head just, like, comes up. And it's like, Dad, come on. Come on, let's do a thing. Yeah. Let's do something.
1: <laughs> She's not going to leave me alone now, I don't think, until we go for a walk. To
0: be fair, though, you did kind of open up the treat pot, dude. So I feel like you did kind
1: of I, I, a
0: bad choice.
1: Yeah. I, I, let's not get into this right now
0: (laughs) (laughs) you can watch back the video and go right so at that point it's cool Uh, I'm I'm teasing you you know I am (laughs) um okay so back to back to kind of zoos and stuff I I think even since I've been kind of a trainer things like husbandry and like kind of more like consent-based training and enrichment is all stuff that even 10 years ago was kind of a bit woo and a bit out there. And now it's like for certain kind of communities, it's, it's standard procedure, you know, you like, I mean, one of our dogs has had um, a minor, a little bit of minor surgery this week with um, having to have a couple of lumps removed, bless her. And the nurse came in um, when I was dropping her off and I said, Oh, when you do the blood draw, if you just, put your hand here like this and ask her to basically cue a chin target. I was like, she'll let you do the blood draw easy. And she was like, Oh yeah, no, she, she did it fine. Cause I knew if they tried to restrain her like more kind of hands on how they may do with other dogs, it would freak her out. Whereas if you just ask her to do a chin target, she'll just do a chin target.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's awesome.
0: It kind of shocks me. I think how in ways with, With zoo animals, I feel a lot more training goes into the husbandry than with domestics.
1: Well, I think once again, it depends on the individuals and Mm -hmm. depends on the organization and it depends on the budget. But I think things like the internet, social media, online learning, speed and access to information have have just been exploding. And this translates to zoo professionals upskilling themselves with the knowledge that they can then apply to the species in their care. Mm-hmm. Um, the training that I see now in zoos at all levels compared to what I was exposed to in 2007 is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, also in the last, what I'm going to say, five, six years, uh, we've formed the, in, in Australasia, we have formed the Animal Training and Behavior Subcommittee, which forms part of the Australian Society of Zookeeping. Uh, and, and unfortunately, like many things globally, COVID really affected our momentum. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still as a committee in our time together, we've run workshops all over Australia and New Zealand. We've run huge conferences with guest speakers from around the world and hundreds of attendees. We've set up scholarships and sent keepers internationally to learn from others and bring what they learned back to our region. Uh, and, and I know many of my colleagues in other parts of the world are, are doing very similar things to this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I think... One word sums this all up beautifully, and, and that is progress, which, which is fantastic because the role of zoos, as you've mentioned, is just going to keep becoming more and more critical over the coming years. And the reason why I feel there would be a big difference between a snapshot taken in two thousand and seven of the industry and one taken now is that the animal train is that, like animal training, uh, the industry is continually taking. Small successive approximations. So we can look at the big picture and appreciate the big difference, but credit has to go to the individuals on the ground for Mm. doing the hard work and their never ending drive to improve the lives of animals in their care. Uh, I believe that is actually the same now, that drive is the same now as it was in 2007. But what we're seeing is the compounding effects of that. Um, So that's just super heartwarming.
0: Yeah, and I mean, like, straight away, kind of the, the thing that came to mind from kind of watching TV shows and stuff, like, we have a show over here about um, the park, Longleat, and I was watching it one day, you know, you'll kind of flick through, it, and it's like, oh, the zoo program's on, cool, let's watch this. And um, they basically were recalling the lions in, and I was like, oh, next they recall. <laughs> and yeah, I yeah, just yeah. found it so cool that, like, the lions did a recall, and then I was like, well, of course they do, because that's how... You get sheep in, that's how you get horses in, that's how you get dogs in. So it would make sense that you've trained all these other species to recall. And, you know, they were explaining on camera that they did it with the food and blah, blah. And I was like, so you've reinforced them for coming indoors when you've called them. You've just conditioned a recall. But for some reason, because it was lions, it it seemed like this really like awesome behavior, but then my brain's going, but it's just a recall. With a lion,
1: <laughs> yeah, and and I think for me, we, one thing you and I talked about discussing on this episode before we pushed record was the similarities and differences
2: mm-hmm.
1: between working in the zoo industry and working in the domestic industry. And yeah. I, I made a suggestion to you before we pushed record that we just, we kind of maybe lean. And I gave the you a
0: beautiful segue right there. <laughs>
1: Let's let's talk about it because I I had a really challenging time to be honest with you thinking about differences because as you've just described I I see everything as as, apart from natural history of course Mm -hmm. that goes without saying I feel that natural history of a snake is different than the natural history of a dog Mm -hmm. but Everything else, I just saw similarities in. So I've listed a couple down. Shall I run through them?
0: Yeah, do I? Go for it.
1: Well, similarity numero uno. Uh, and, and I want to start with some definitions I've learned over the years. Thank you, Dr. Susan Friedman. The importance of unpacking labels and sharing definitions.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I appreciate that sometimes I might say something, and the definition I have in my mind of what I'm talking about might be very different definition the person I'm talking to might have in their mind Mm
2: -hmm.
1: so I wanted to find training for when I use that word uh, in this Mm -hmm. part and and that and if you're listening and you have a different definition that's cool I'm not saying there's a right or wrong definition I just want to clarify what I mean Mm -hmm. uh, when I say it in the context of this podcast episode and that definition is the intentional and strategic setting up of antecedents and consequences to modify behavior Mm -hmm. and for me This is all implemented under the umbrella of my ethics. With my ethical approach being guided by Susan Friedman's illustration, hierarchy of behavior change procedures according to the least intrusive effective alternative is a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) Uh, But if if you haven't seen this illustration, you can source it from Susan's Behavior Works website. If you send me
0: the link, I'll stick it in the show notes so that people can click on and have a look.
1: Awesome. So that, that is... Findable in the show notes, and also, <laughs>
0: and there is also now a Chihuahua helper, which I'm loving.
1: <laughs> you might hear some licking. There's not me being. It's thirsty. not me either. <laughs> that is Phoebe Dog, who's right next sniffing, literally in the microphone right now. That's crazy. um. So Susan's website is www.behaviourworks.org. Uh, if you visit the written work section in there, which uh, Carrie's kind of going to link to, there's an article called What's Wrong With This Picture? Effectiveness Is Not Enough. And and the illustration is included in that article. Or Mm -hmm. you can just Google it and and it should pop up. But in a very quick nutshell, it offers a guide to help choose intervention Mm -hmm. procedures, starting from the least intrusive options to the most intrusive options, Mm -hmm. which those most intrusive options, we seldom, if at all, need to leverage. Uh, And I get my definition of intrusiveness from Susan's article. Mm -hmm. We see references a paper from Carter and Wheeler, 2005. They define intrusiveness according to two important criteria. One, the level of social acceptability of an intervention. And you've kind of alluded to how that changed, the social acceptability of the zoo world has changed over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And two, the degree to which the learner maintains control while the intervention is in effect. Now, in my opinion, Training under this framework means we are cons- constantly learning about the latest science and applications, procedure ideas to offer our animals as much choice and control as possible, and be as unintrusive as possible. Mm-hmm. In that case, we are, in my opinion, very likely adding to our animals' welfare in a positive way. We increase the number of, of enjoyable events in an individual's day or week. We are, in my opinion, adding to their welfare.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And we can magnify this impact when we use the tools that the science of behavior teaches us to aid in that animal's care, to help them voluntarily participate in their husbandry and medical procedures. This is a considerable similarity that I see across both my work in zoos and with domestic animals. Mm -hmm. I'm totally aware that for some learners in some zoos or domestic settings, this is, unfortunately not the case Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and I feel for those learners yeah I'm I'm personally so busy with people doing amazing things I find myself short of time to serve everyone as much as I would like and and what I'm seeing is so much growth in both the zoo and domestic world Mm -hmm. in this direction and I'd have to say this this is a similarity so that's the first one I noted down yeah and with that in mind, the second similarity is that, as we've talked about already, so we'll build on our previous conversations, is that the science of learning is universal across species. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if you're working with your dog at home or a crested iguana in a zoo context, recalling your sheep or recalling your lion. Both of these animals are earthlings. All of these animals are earthlings.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the laws of behavior equally apply to them. Now, as we've mentioned already, the differences in the natural history of a domestic horse versus a wedge tailed eagle are significant. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And consequently, there are some very unique variables in working with these different species. But how a wedge tailed eagle learns and how a horse learns in terms of their behavior being influenced by their environment with antecedents, signaling the availability of reinforcement or likelihood of aversives based on an individual's learning history Mm-hmm. Remains the same. That knowledge allows us to jump between species
2: mm-hmm. and
1: use the tools that the science of learning provides us positive reinforcement, antecedent arrangement, motivating operations, etc., etc., mm-hmm. and therefore progress in our training across species. Uh, as you mentioned, this excites me as well. It gives me the confidence to jump in front of a brand new species.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: However, I worry that saying I have the confidence to jump in front of any species gives the wrong impression. This is still always done with safety being our priority. And just like with domestic species, protective contact is often utilized. This is always done by starting at the bottom of Susan's hierarchy I mentioned earlier and ensuring our individual learners are in good physical health and have adequate diets and nutrition. So veterinary staff are, in both domestic and zoo contexts essential members of an animal care team. Well set up environments relevant for the species and careful consideration and respect for the individual learner. And for me, as mentioned earlier, I surround myself with people who are way smarter than I am. (laughs) Especially when it comes to knowledge about individual species. Mm -hmm. I'm often coming in with the science of learning and I pair this with the knowledge and experience of others. So having a solid team is vital to be able to do what I do. Yeah. But, so similarity number two is the science of learning is universal across species. Do you want me to go yeah. on? Got
0: no, I, I just want to touch on that quickly because yeah. I, I do think the first thing as you were kind of going through it um, was the, the Einstein quote of um, everybody is a genius until you judge a fish on its ability to climb a tree and I was like oh this is like the tree climbing fish quote as it's affectionately known in our household but it is true isn't it that if you are if you are kind of looking at the individual and the learner and you're working through things so that they are using my favorite term setting them up for success so that they can learn it's I love the fact that that understanding isn't just for dogs it is going across all the species and we are now understanding that you can train an owl and you can train I don't know a frog and a chicken and you know I mean so many trainers have gone on over in the UK there there was a course called chicken camp which I always wanted to go on but I'm a little bit scared of chickens, so I never did um dinosaurs like, dude they freak me out a bit okay and I don't know why but they just do especially I think I got chased by a crow a few times. like it's happened more than once and they just freak me out but for me I just think that knowing that there are more similarities than there are differences is actually really reassuring just as a trainer that it's understanding how to train once you understand how to train effectively and minimally aversively you can train any species
1: yeah and and that minimally minimally aversively uh is additionally applied to your individual learners i I get asked to work with people and, and i would rather work with a trainer who might not be using minimally aversive strategies but is open to learning and has demonstrated they are a good learner
2: mm-hmm.
1: and someone who is just adamant that they only train minimally aversively and but they're they're not necessarily open to dialogue
0: yeah
1: um, I, I I don't judge anyone on that techniques I just think anyone's me with less information or less knowledge or skill, or different different information and knowledge or skills, because I acknowledge that the subject matter expert on the individual in front of them is the person who looks after them every single day.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm just stepping in there as a learner to learn as well. Um, but yeah, that is. I think the more I do this as the years go on, the more similarities and the less differences I personally see,
0: which is awesome. So is there a number three?
1: Yeah, well, number three is the vital importance of good communication and healthy relationships. And I'm talking about human-to-human relationships here. Mm -hmm. Working within a team of coworkers in a zoo context or working within your home environment, in my experience, requires consistently endeavoring to build healthy relationships with those around you.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, We often talk about trust accounts with our non-human learners, trust accounts being a term I heard firstly from US-based trainer Steve Martin, Mm -hmm. and once again, the excellent Dr. Susan Friedman. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those two wrote an article on this as well called The Power of Trust, found on both Steve's website and Dr. Friedman's website. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and on both of those sites, there's so many high-quality pieces of content. So if you haven't already ventured into those spaces, please do so.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, In my paraphrased version, (laughs) The concept is basically that every interaction you have with your animal is either putting a deposit in your trust account or making a withdrawal. Mm -hmm. Much like putting money in an actual bank account, of course, to have a healthy account, you want to make as many deposits as possible and have as few withdrawals as possible. But if you do have lots of money in your bank account or positive interactions in your trust account, when you do have to make a withdrawal, you're still in the positive and you're not going to go bankrupt. On a similar note, Stephen Covey, the author of the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, has a similar term he calls the emotional bank account when thinking about these ideas with each other. Mm -hmm. Developing good listening skills, being kind and generous, expressing gratitude, following through on what you say you're going to do, showing up on time, and the list goes on. The importance and value of considering these lessons to the best of our abilities with each other And how any slash every interaction we have is hypothetically putting deposits in our trust account or taking them out are vital to working together as a team for the well-being of animals in our care and on that note working in a zoo context versus in people's homes Mm
2: -hmm. another
1: similarity is the dynamics of these human teams as we've talked about both in zoos and at home more than one human is involved in the animal's care, including making decisions about the animals, setting up environments, allocation of resources, et cetera, et cetera. I think in both cases, there can be an individual human who is the most motivated when it comes to training and therefore learns the most about the science and the tools of behavior change and thus has more buy-in on interventions When talking about behaviors, we might label problematic and sexual training new behaviors. In the home context, this means implementing training with family members, different generations, different motivations, and different relationships with the animals. In the zoo context, this means your team members. I was the employee who was always trying to train all of the things, all of the time. (laughs) And I was within teams where my teammates were more interested in other other, other areas of, of animal care. However, in a zoo environment, much like in your home or your client's home, effectively implementing training programs requires the ability to consider how your motivations, goals, and actions fit into the team's motivations, objectives, and activities. And once again, those human relationships are so essential because At the end of the day, in both the zoo context and the domestic context, it's the people's behavior that Mm -hmm. needs changing the most.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess as well, looking at it from kind of the team point of view, um, and obviously I'm looking at it from the views of a trainer that's gone into a household and maybe, you know, so there's mum, dad, maybe there's an older relative, maybe there's a child, And you're going to need to adapt how each one's doing it depending on totally the relationship with the animal, but also their expectations because, you know, the older person may have the understanding that you need to be firmer with the dog. And then obviously you're going to have the child that is also learning and doesn't have the dexterity that the adults are going to have to do stuff. And it is about kind of assigning those roles to each one. And I guess- from the zoo point of view like you you were kind of the one that wanted to do the training stuff but you also need the person that's going to be doing the environment stuff and that's going to be making the decisions on other things and it's all of those components that make it a successful team it's not just well there is no i in team is there and i'm not going to finish that sentence because it's rude
1: i don't know i don't know the rest of it um
0: it's the one word i can't say on this podcast (laughs) i'll message you later <laughs> yeah
1: okay. I, I have a good a pretty good idea um, <laughs> <laughs> that's I've just
0: totally broke, broken your brain practice. now by using rude swear words not allowed to use the rude swear word i'm sorry
1: well, i'm trying to think about what you're just saying in relation to let's say you've got a house with a, a, a middle-aged um blue-collar person who's called you up for help
2: mm-hmm. uh
1: is logical reasonable rational person and can understand that what you're talking about how it works and how to apply it Mm -hmm. and then you have the children you have the wife and you have the grandparent Mm -hmm. if 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 that was a recall situation with dogs and you had an old dog a young dog a middle-aged well-trained dog and, or, the, or the other way around, let's say that the, the wife is the, the blue-collar person and, and very well, reasonable and rational. And my, my experience, uh, a lot of our ATA members are female and uh, more emotive and, and more when I go to positive reinforcement events, they're mostly female. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then, you've got the, and then you've got two middle-aged dogs, one's well-trained, One's kind of does what they want. Uh, you're you're going to come up with a, a group training program and an individual training program as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and and I think it's just the same for working with your clients. If, if that's the client environment you find yourself in, or often if you work in a zoo. In my experience, when I was employee, we had the older generation keeper who had been there for 30 40 years. Um, I at Wellington Zoo, we had uh, Muzz, rest in peace, Muzz. He, he passed away a couple of years ago. Muzz had worked at Wellington Zoo his entire life.
0: Wow, and.
1: <laughs> I loved he used to, we Mountain Zoo doesn't house elephants anymore because of the space, mm-hmm. uh, you know, signs of changing times, and, and rightly so. Uh, but I, I remember we used to go down to a, a native parrot talk, and Mars would be like, this is our native parrot. Let me tell you about when we had elephants here. <laughs> and he would just go off on these elephant talks, and I you oh know, I, and, I, and, I mean, it was just uh, living... History of Wellington Zoo.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so you have those members on your team, uh, and and they've seen all of the change with how management of behaviour is done. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and
1: then you got your fresh green keepers who've just come out of the zoo course, and they're still bright-eyed no tailed <laughs> Then you've got your compassion-fatigued keeper who's a mother or father of multiple children and uh, has seen so many challenging situations that they've stopped having emotive reactions because they can't deal with it anymore, but they're stuck in their workplace. And then you've got um, people who have worked their way up and are really sound and logical and making waves in the zoo industry. So you, you've got all of these people in your zoo team as well, much the same. And you have to approach every relationship and every individual with respect and kindness and yeah. gratitude uh, and, and, in a different way
0: yeah and it and it is about teamwork isn't it at the end of the day it's it's building the the teamwork between the people but also i like the way you term it as learners is everyone within the group because it is it's not just the different species in front of us it is everyone learning to work together and to coexist
1: yeah and and who knows if you've got a one member of the family bringing you in to help and the other member of the family is, and, and maybe the member of the family that brings you in to help is uh, more of a stay-at-home parent role. Uh, and, and the other one's going out to work. And that, uh, that other parent might be under extreme pressure from work. And that extreme pressure from work might mean that they're not sleeping as well at night. Mm-hmm. And they're also skipping lunch.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So therefore we have distant antecedents of poor sleep, poor nutrition. And then you're saying, can you do these things? And the environment's not set up for this individual to succeed, regardless of whether they understand it.
0: Flip that as it's a puppy and the puppy's biting everyone because they are maybe only getting two meals a day when they could do with three and they're not sleeping enough because there's kids running around the house and puppies need sleep. And then they're biting everyone But with the puppy, we'd be like, well, we need to adjust how they're being fed and we need to look at how they're sleeping. Yet with the person, you're not gonna be like, oh, and by the way, you need to eat your lunch and you need to sleep more and stop being stressed at work. But it's the same thing.
1: yeah if, if that information comes up that you can provide empathy you can yeah. you can have an opportunity to speak to that individual maybe they don't want to be involved but if an opportunity comes up you can say hey look I appreciate this is big but I appreciate how much you have going on at work and I appreciate yeah. like how challenging that must be well actually I can't appreciate it like you must be under immense pressure so you, know, you, you tell me if you want to learn I'll, I'm here but if you don't then that, that's totally. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so adding, I think, that level of understanding, compassion—you don't always have it, and you don't always have the resources, the time to find that out. And and you've also got to draw that, that line between invasiveness into someone's life mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. what you're being called for. But I think we never know what's going on in someone's life. We just don't. And often, then yeah, you you have to acknowledge that when you're making those.
0: But then that. That again kind of reflects the when you're working with different species, they can't always communicate, they certainly can't verbalize with us exactly what's going on and we understand from body language that certain things may mean certain things, but depending on other factors, this is where kind of the, the training thing becomes this massive umbrella of understanding because you need to be able to look for all those little clues that go with, with the animal. And it's not just a case of, oh, well, I've been the amount of times I got called into consults because it was generally either loose sleep walking or recall. And then it turned out that actually there was this whole other stuff that was going on. And the recall was the least of the problems. <laughs> because yeah. there was all this other stuff that needed addressing.
1: And that and that's where learning. That's yes, where my learning is, is, is heading and, and enjoying the contributions that people mm. like Kim are uh, bring into our community. Uh, Emily Strong and Ali Bender, their canon Enrichment for the Real World and, and all of the work they're doing and their private membership and, and offerings um, are really expanding our lens.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and for me anyway, build, building my appreciation of um, training is not my starting point. Yeah. Even though I'm a trainer. I know that to train, I need to take care of all of this other stuff first. Mm-hmm. Start at the bottom of Susan's hierarchy,
2: yeah. uh,
1: which positive reinforcement is the third rung up on her hierarchy. So we're quite a way into an intervention before we start to train.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. So I think I've kind of done all the questions that we were we were planning on, um, da, 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 I'm just double checking. Ah, oh, I know the last one, and this is a really good one to finish on. What is the crazy story? Because you've got to have at least one for me. <laughs> Come yeah, on, we uh, need a crazy uh, zoo story to wrap this one up.
1: <laughs> well, well, for me, I think what's most crazy is is the gaps that I still see in understanding about how learning and behavior work. And, and in a zoo context, as we've been discussing just now, there are so many people and in a home context that impact our animals' behavior. Uh, In the zoo context, obviously the the animal care team, uh, Mm -hmm. which include veterinarians, uh, but then there's the public, Mm -hmm. and that's the same with our dogs and our horses. Uh, Then there's educational staff, and then there's managers, there's health and safety officers, there's maintenance staff, there's gardeners, and, and all of the people that work at or visit a zoo all of these people can impact the animals' experience in the zoo,
2: mm-hmm. and, and
1: one thing I've always found challenging and still do to this day was and is the use of labels, mm-hmm. uh, and unfortunately, sometimes in my experience, they're heavy use in zoos. Uh, I don't know if this is what you're after with regards to crazy, <laughs> but, but this 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 is crazy to me. Yep. Uh, and and I use I and the use of labels I have found. Is the same, it's the same with domesticated animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I've been in situations with zoo animals and domestic animals where individuals have been in the firing line for euthanasia. And, and I think the use of labels in some of these contexts has played a significant role in leading up to those conversations.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, heavy use of labels placed upon animals, in my opinion, can lead to the humans involved by all of those pe- people mentioned before in any situation not taking responsibility for their learners. We are such a massive part of our learners' environments in any context. We play considerable roles in their world. And and sometimes their world, their physical world, might be their enclosure. Mm -hmm. And although that sounds kind of horrible, don't get me wrong, uh, when talking about zoos, as mentioned, they are one of the most significant contributors to conservation on the planet. Mm -hmm. The work of good zoos is fundamental to the survival of species. And captive, breedings are, captive breeding programs are a massive part of this. Mm-hmm. And this has never been more important than right now. But often for an individual animal, their world is their enclosure. And their enclosure habitat is our responsibility. And part of being the managers of their world
2: mm-hmm.
1: is the education of the staff looking after them. And I don't want to pass any judgment on anyone because... Zoo staff are amazing. Mm-hmm. They work so hard, yep. and they care so much. And there's also so much to learn. Yep. The training and the training and the science of learning is a small component of the vast amount of knowledge and skills that zoo staff had to know and learn. But from my time being an employee and now a consultant. In the zoo context, Mm -hmm. I feel a lot of vital behavior science information was slash is missing. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: the use of labels on animals across zoos and across my career was rife and, in my opinion, impacted so much on individual animals. Mm -hmm. Placing the blame for an animal's behavior inside an animal rather than understanding that in the context slash environment these animals find themselves in, they're doing the best they can to access reinforcers and remove aversives using yeah. the tools they were born with learning. And just like you and I do, and it's our just like you and I do, we do the same, right? Mm-hmm. And it's our job to set them up for success Yeah. and use the tools of training and enrichment to help them learn new, more desirable behaviors. This is our responsibility. And I believe we owe them the respect of doing that for them. Yeah. However, If we're just blaming animals, the animal's stubborn, the animal's aggressive, because that's who they are, it can really prevent anyone, if it's the animal's fault, from taking responsibility and helping those animals learn. Yeah. So I think the heavy use of labels is one of the craziest things I encounter. Mm -hmm. But overall, the understanding of science of learning within zoos is way better now than it was 15 years ago, which is fantastic, because it heavily affects people's ability to manage behavior effectively and ethically. And part of the responsibility of everyone with their animal's behavior, no matter the context, is, in my opinion, to take responsibility because we control so much of their environments. Mm -hmm. What goes in their enclosures or their crates, what comes out, what time things happen, enrichment, training, diet, shades, mates, Co-specifics, mm-hmm. everything, and then when behavior doesn't go the way we want, hearing so many undesirable labels placed on animals is something that I just found crazy yeah. from my time as a zoo employee. So huge improvements, but I think we have some ways to go there.
0: Do you know what though? I do think that that crosses over still to to the dog world and kind of Absolutely. maybe not so much. Well, no trainers do do it. You know, I mean, like earlier, I don't know. You probably didn't know someone said the listeners definitely well the listeners will know but when you went oh reactive aggressive I was like mm, don't use the word reactive um I always refer to it as big emotions because <laughs> I'm like my dog is not reactive he just has big emotions about the world on certain days at certain times but we do have to be really careful about the language we're using the way we're using it and what we mean by it. you know one of one of my biggest ones is it's a cue not a command like it's it's such a small thing like I've given a cue for my animal to perform behavior rather than I've commanded my animal and I think that the more we can kind of be mindful of the language we're using and how we're using labels and to explain what those labels mean I think is how we're going to keep progressing and improving life for all the earthlings. And I love this term earthlings. Like I've never thought to use it before, but I'm stealing it and I'm going to use it. I'm,
1: I'm passing it on. Uh, I'm passing it on from uh, my mentor and, and massive gratitude to her, Dr. Susan Friedman. Uh, that, that is one thing I've got from her. Um, and, and, and totally agree. Uh, and, and she models for us so well, what you just talked mm-hmm. about uh, in acknowledging labels when we use them. Uh, and, and, and agree about the term reactive I have learned from Kathy Sadeo to use the word responsive
0: mm-hmm. and
1: cue rather than trigger
0: mm-hmm. now
1: animals are responding to cues yeah.
0: yeah it's exactly um, that but until we kind of have these conversations and make people be mindful you know society is becoming more mindful of language in general you know we are all improving and trying to be more understanding and more Showing more empathy and kindness. I mean, you know, the pandemic screwed up a lot of stuff, but the whole kind of be kind thing, at least we attempted to get it out there. I don't know if it reached everyone in the world, especially not at the moment, but we are still trying to kind of spread the good word. Um, Right, I'm very mindful that I'm using up all your time and it's morning where you are. So you've got the rest of your day ahead of you and it's getting later and later here. So I'm going to have very tired dogs in a minute. Um, if people want to find out more about the stuff you're doing, where can they find that? And obviously if they want to listen to your podcast.
1: Yeah, so the best place to hit too would be www.atamember.com, www.atamember.com. Uh, on that website you can sign up for our free courses you can uh, listen to both of our podcast shows
0: mm-hmm. you can
1: read our blog posts um when's this episode going out Carrie?
0: um i believe this is going to be september
1: sure. we're like so- way in
0: the future or like the past right now we're in the past <laughs> right now yeah because this is now september when people are listening i think
1: so it, it's 11th of may we're recording this uh in six days we're shutting our membership doors for the first time ever Um, so we don't know when we're going to be opening them again
0: okay
1: Um, uh, and so if you wanted to join our membership then in september you're probably gonna hit our website you can join our waitlist okay Uh, and and by joining the waitlist we'll be able to tell people when uh, the membership doors will be opening again so they can uh, jump in and Our membership, we have two live classes every month with subject matter experts. We've been doing that for five, six years. We have 125 plus live recordings available in our library now. We've forums. We have a private Facebook group, which is by far members' favorite area Mm -hmm. because I believe uh, we apply all of the things we've been talking about today to the way we run our community. we look for reinforceable behavior and we do our best to reinforce it we acknowledge that everyone's an individual and what Mm -hmm. we think is reinforcing is only reinforcing if we see that individual member increase or maintain their behavior in the future sometimes we don't we try our best we ignore unwanted behavior we set up the environment well for people to succeed Mm -hmm. Uh, and and guess what it works
0: (laughs) (laughs) funny that it's like there's science (laughs)
1: And, and so we've got a thriving Facebook group, which is incredibly popular, incredibly busy. We dedicate hours of our resources every day into that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that's what our membership is. And um, it's, it's kind of like an online group mentorship, really. Cool. Uh, and so people can jump on the wait list, I think, in September. Yep. I don't know what's happening. We're shutting our doors. and
0: I know. It's like, oh, my God, yeah, and we're in the days. future and the past. And I don't understand what time is anymore.
1: um but but chances are you know we could open it as little as once a year so jumping on that wait list we'll be able to uh, put you at the front of the queue when we we open our doors again
0: amazing amazing so guys as always um you can follow my dogs on instagram at minx chihuahua at dodge shepherd canine hoopers world is on insta and facebook if you want to buy me a coffee buy me a coffee.com slash hoopers and until next time and ryan's gonna like this one i think Stay safe, be kind, wash your hands thoroughly, keep your dogs on lead around livestock and don't let them lick toads. Take care, guys. Bye. K9 Hoopers World now has achievement awards online so anyone, anywhere can test their teamwork and get one of our beautiful rosettes There's even one for puppies. The website will tell you more about that and Hoopers, how to find an instructor. We also offer online training. There are beginners courses. We offer online training in distance handling and there are instructor courses for dog trainers. Join us on Facebook. We have a friendly international group and follow us on Instagram at Canine Hoopers World. Canine Hoopers World, everyone's invited.